Well, it started last September. Everyone at school had found out I was gay by then. The bullying had mostly stopped, I guess, and people had started to be nice to me. There was a group of six formers who stopped the bullies, but everyone in the school knew I was gay. So I was practicing my drums one morning before form in a practice room, and I look up and I see Ben looking in through the door window. He walks in, starts telling me how good I am at playing the drums, and I'm just sitting there like, what the fuck? Because I'd never spoken with him before in my life, but I was also kind of freaking out because I thought he was really attractive. Eventually he comes in and sits next to me and starts talking to me about me coming out at school and like how brave I am and stuff. Even though it's not like I came out myself or anything, it's just, it just got out because I told a couple of people. And the next thing I know, he's just kissing me. And yeah, we just continued to meet up sometimes at school before form and like, I was so excited about it, I thought I had a boyfriend or like, I was having some big romance. But I slowly started to realize he was just using me for someone to make out with because he knew I was the only gay boy he knew. And then in January, I found out he had a girlfriend as well. Some girl from Higgs School. I don't know if he's bisexual or gay or whatever, but it doesn't really change anything. He was just using me. So says Alice Osman in Volume 1 of Heartstopper, which we're discussing today on Literary Guys. I'm Dr. Gordon McCallan. And I'm author Zachary Kellyan. And that was the uh, cute, charming romance that's at the heart of this graphic novel, right? No, it's not, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, this is actually the broken relationship that one of our two protagonists, Charlie, is recovering from at the beginning of this graphic novel. And we're going to be talking about volumes one and two today. I will talk about why in a moment, but the... General setup is that this other boy who is still in the closet is very much using Charlie in order to have some sort of essentially sexual gratification while still pretending to be in the closet. And it's actually this very abusive relationship, at least on emotional terms. Mm -hmm. It's tantamount in and of itself to bullying. And I think it's really, for me, at the heart of why I think the Heartstopper graphic novels are so fascinating. And I cannot wait to dig into that today with you and to kind of talk about why I think these are so important and why I feel like even though they have many, many, many shortcomings, and I'm not going to gloss over that, but there are some things which are critical about these books as a turning point in literature and something Mm. which I am very happy to have read and to continue to share with others. That sounds great. You know, as this podcast token straight man, I guess I'm just here to listen. Well, I I do want your opinion (laughs) on this because I'm not going to chastise you if you disagree with me on this, but I think that there are things about this series which were so surprising to me. Yeah, and I want to hear about those. I think we had originally looked at this as perhaps our main graphic novel that we were going to review for the season. We ended up going with Road to Perdition. Mm -hmm. And you had... uh, It's essentially the same book, right? Yeah, a lot of overlap. You had me read issue one, I guess, as it's kind of been bound. Yeah, the first book. Yeah, Yeah, and I enjoyed it. I thought really, really attractive art style, very like quaint. Um, You know, I just loved how all the accoutrement of like the tech stuff that they had and how that was incorporated Mm -hmm. and even the changing of the seasons was really nicely denoted in the art style. So very charming there and a really cute love story at the heart of it that 
I thought was, yeah, this is charming and nice and diverting, but there was no stakes. There was no plot in that first book. And I was like, how are we possibly going to talk about this? And I did say, you got to read at least the second book. I I hope there's a little bit more there. There is, there is. So, as usual, spoiler alerts on everything we're going to talk about here today. I highly recommend reading these first two books. They read so fast. Yeah. Like, it, just a little historical context, this was originally a webcomic that then got bundled into book form. Which, knowing that, I think is maybe the best way, if that webcomic is still available, probably mm-hmm. the best way to view it in a series of panels versus... This is, this book, when something's bound in a book form, you expect a narrative arc. Mm-hmm. But when something's coming out in weekly, I would assume, webisodes, you're probably more content to just have a slice of the action, to get a little bit more information. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like the narrative tension probably works better in that kind of serialized release. I didn't read it that way, so I can't really say for sure, but you may have a point there. I really do want to kind of just dig into the context here, but for the sake of just making sure that we have everyone on the same page, and again, read the book, and also I highly recommend the Netflix series. It's wonderful. It's really good. It's a little different. There's a number of things that are changed and some additional storylines that add a little more narrative tension, but I think they can both be appreciated. But, you know, one of the things that pops up in this that I think is interesting is that this is a story about gay men or predominantly about gay men. Mm -hmm. There are other folks who are on the LGBTQ spectrum in here, not just gay men. But it is interesting in the context of what we've talked so much about that this is written by a woman. Yeah. I think she is very much reading the room as Mm. far as what is missing in gay literature. And, you know, another book which, you know, I'll put it in the guilty pleasure category that we've joked about a number of times, soon to be a major motion picture. Yes. Red, White, and Royal Blue was also written by a woman. And there is something to be said about this kind of romance novel about gay men that is written by women that it does sort of, I don't know, scratch an itch, for lack of a better term. Yeah, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot. You shouldn't have to, in the world of fiction, identify exactly as your characters identify to write their stories. You are the creator of the world. I think if, in this case, if you're, in Alice Oseman's case, as a female writing about two younger gay males I think she's got her work cut out for her mm-hmm. absolutely um, and more due diligence is probably going to be asked of her but to hear from you that you know she gets a lot of things right or she's really kind of hitting on a topic that isn't often covered or isn't often addressed I'd, I'd like to hear you expand upon that a little bit more but it's good to hear that you found that she was respectful of it and kind of earned the right to tell the story The reason why I feel like she achieves that is she's hitting on why I think this work just resonated so much with me. I think it's really easy for folks in my age demographic of like early 40s who grew up, you know, like yourself, grew up in the Midwest Mm -hmm. in a very conservative kind of environment. You know, when I say conservative, I mean very much just like in comparison to like the bubble we live in here in Seattle, for instance. Yeah, everything's relative, right? But I think it's so easy to get trapped in this idea that because so much progress has been made in the LGBTQ world, which unfortunately is being rolled back in a lot of places right now, so I don't want to gloss over that. But let's, let's just say like versus the environment in which I grew up in, that it's easy to say, well, you know, folks growing up who are gay now must have it so easy. 
You know, that they must be able to navigate things so much better because they're more understood, they're more visible, they're less of an outcast. And I think this book does a damn good job of just saying, you know what? Maybe it's just a little bit better, but there's a whole new onslaught of issues that have shown up since then that are so foreign to a straight audience Mm. that even myself as a gay man, like looking at this, I'm like, I never had these particular set of problems. But they're very real and they're a result of the way the culture has shifted to try and become more accepting, but it's really not. Interesting. So... You know, and I'm obviously on the peripheral of this conversation, but I've certainly heard the talk of like the baby gays and how they don't get it and they don't know what hardship is and the struggle. And I think it's interesting for you to give us your perspective on this because someone like you who was closeted in high school, Mm -hmm. that's almost survival mode, more or less. And there is a simplicity that comes with, hey, my directive is to just have my defenses up and Mm -hmm. get through this. Once you have those defenses down, as Charlie does in the very outset of this, you know, he's already out of the closet right. and living his truth as a gay young man in his high school and seem, for the most part seems to be fairly accepted amongst the general population, which is a crazy thing probably for you to see. Mm-hmm. Um, it does open up all these other problems because now there's all these other complexities to navigate versus just that one directive of survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got the character of Ben, who the quote I read at the beginning of this episode is referring to the dysfunctional relationship that Charlie has with him, who is in this situation where he's acting awful to so many people. But how much of that is due to him being unable to come out himself and essentially abusing this kid who is out and is trying to be more authentic? Like, that happens, We see in this British high school environment so many different points along the spectrum of people coming to self-acceptance that we see Charlie who he didn't choose to come out. He got pushed out into at least broader knowledge of the fact that he was gay uh, and made his life a living hell because of it. And, you know, again, going back to that quote, which I think is, it it feels very much unlike the happy-go-lucky romance of this novel, but that's the truth that he is living, is having been in that abused state, you know, or trauma. I think trauma is a good way to look at this. So we have that, and then we have Ben, who's deep in the closet. We have Nick, who I don't even think we've mentioned his name yet here, the other protagonist who is such a great character because he is on a journey of self-discovery himself and that he is open to it, even though it scares him. Anyhow, for for folks who, again, I hope you've read this and you know what's going on, but generally the plot of these two first books is that Nick meets Charlie. Nick is one year older than Charlie, and he's like the school sports star, which I know is kind of like the one stereotype of this book that I don't like. Yeah. Like, you know, it feels like a, a really bad If you had only book. known that you just had to join the rugby team to find your person. I know, right? been so much easier. Anyhow, so they start to spend some time together. Mm -hmm. We see on Charlie's side that he is very afraid of falling for this boy who he very much suspects is straight and he has his friends around him telling him he shouldn't be spending time with them because he's going to get hurt again. And then on the other side, we have Nick who he doesn't know what's going on. Like, literally, yeah. he's Googling things that I know, and I can speak to, you know, from a personal perspective, people have Googled in the past because they don't understand. Right. Because 
these kinds of things happen to other people. It was interesting to me as a reader that Nick isn't really putting up a front. Charlie only thinks Nick's straight because everybody else has rumors about Nick being into this girl because she mm. talked to him at a party mm -hmm. like last summer or whatever. Like Nick's not even identifying one way or the other really outwardly. Right, right. It's all these other people putting expectations on him, which I think is probably very true for any high school student, you know, regardless of how they identify. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really telling, like he hasn't really ever looked at it as a choice. I think that this is, again, something else that, from an LGBTQ perspective, like, if you're trying to be authentic, the choice is thrust upon you. How are you going to discover your authenticity? Whereas, if you are not different, you never have to ask those questions. Right. We've talked a lot on the show about coming out and mm -hmm. what that means in the process. And, you know, I've, I think I've said many times that it's both a scary thing, but also one of the most wonderful things at the same time. And to be able to look at that journey of true self-discovery and being able to throw off the shackles of what people have told you that you should or should not be. And I think you've rightly pointed out the success of LGBTQ plus people in our community in terms of their careers, mm -hmm. how they're able, you know, they've dealt with challenges that most people never have to deal with from the very outset. And that kind of steel meeting steel and, and how that can really strengthen a person is is a positive way to look at it too which i really appreciated the perspective that you gave me mm -hmm. on that so the story is that as we get into the end of the first book these two characters kiss mm -hmm. and charlie has this like just classic like outsider someone who it feels like he has the weight of the world thrust upon him that he blames himself for the fact that they kissed and like completely rejecting that Nick has personal autonomy. Like it's his fault. Yeah. It's so his fault because he has been told throughout his life and his parents are actually like, seem to be good people here. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of parental support in this series, which is good, but because he's the outsider, he's the one who feels like he has to be the one to conform. And whenever things don't go right, it's his fault. And the way in which the first book ends is so spot on that we see Nick being confused, but we see Charlie taking this all onto himself as the one at fault for ruining this wonderful friendship that, you know, he's thinking at that time. And that's what it really was, and it wasn't anything romantic. And it's why it's so good when the second book opens up that these two people are actually able to communicate and realize that there actually was something more there. And the second book is very much about Nick trying to come to terms with what it means for him to be presumably bisexual in this story and that he really has some pretty awful friends. We see the positive example of this very diverse set of LGBTQ friends that Charlie has. Yeah all of whom are struggling with their own challenges, but who are supporting each other. And then we see this awful group of friends that Nick has. And for him to say, you know what, I need to stop listening to these people. And that's really what, that journey, I think, is what exemplifies the second book. You know, that, that gives me a lot more insight into why this is work that should be appreciated. I think on the surface, there's not a lot of narrative tension, but you just illustrated some tension that I hadn't even noticed, where, to your point, Charlie is kind of blaming himself and so into his own personal struggles mm -hmm. that he's not even kind of realizing that Nick's this other thinking, feeling human being that is acting on his own. Yeah. And I hadn't looked at it like that. And that's a really interesting perspective to have onto it. And then, yeah, to your point about their different friendship circles, I think that really is 
interesting. And uh, we like to quote an SNL skit a lot, must get rid of toxic in the community. But mm-hmm. in this case, you see a lot of toxicity in the straight community in terms of the rugby friends and stuff like that, that I think yeah. is something that we need to call out more. And I think it does this. Everything this graphic novel does is gentle, though, which I do appreciate. Yeah. Right. It is a nice form of storytelling and certainly a great form of escapism, too, because you're dealing with real world issues. But then they're also dealing with real world delights. And there's so many cool, like, little juxtapositions that happen through here. Like, throughout the course of this, there's no sex in this book. Yeah, yeah. They kiss, they make out. There's a lot of touching kind of stuff, but it's like, that's it. And it's very much on that level. But... Alice, as the author here, isn't afraid to show that these are real people. Like, there's some very coarse language in this book that is used very sparingly. Yeah, yeah. And there's some things like, again, you know, when these characters start expressing their feelings or looking things up on the internet or that, where it's actually quite raw. And it doesn't fit with the rest of this story. But I think it does merit now going back and talking about just kind of how cute and adorable that this story is of this rugby star kind of falling for this nerdy, wiry kid. And there's a cute dog, and it's so well drawn. You know, you can't help but smile as you flip through the pages. There's so much goodness here. The last thing I want to talk about, again, talking about terms of juxtaposition, and one where I hope I can pull you into the conversation a bit more here, because I feel like this has kind of been my diatribe about why I love uh, these books so much. And I do want to say, like, I think it is without question that I feel like if I had had this kind of literature when I was a kid and been exposed to it, that my life would have been appreciably different. Wow. That's heavy. Yeah. And I am, I am not the first person to say that. I've heard other people say it about these books because it doesn't make anyone feel like they are wrong. It doesn't make anyone feel like they are actually different. They just have a different story to live. Sure. And I don't remember reading anything like these books growing up. And it just kills me. It just literally kills me when I see all of this nonsense in the media about book bans and and about trying to limit exposure of kids to this material, which is so much more positive, uplifting, and meaningful than so much straight literature is, even at the, the young adult level. And it just hurts to know that it would have made such a difference to me. And we have people out there who are like trying to take that away. Like, it's just awful. But the last thing I do want to talk about here is this juxtaposition, again, the contrast between emotional strength and physical strength. And I think it's this trend that underlies so much of what's going on. We have Nick here, who is the physically strong, larger person. And one would normally say that he's the dominant in the traditional sense of physically Mm -hmm. strong and everything else. And don't get me wrong, like, he is a great athlete and he's super cute. Um, Let's not overshadow that. Like, (laughs) he's very well drawn. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So to speak. Um, And then we have Charlie, who actually is the more emotionally strong of the two. Sure. He's more vulnerable, definitely. And there's a lot going on there. But he's been through stuff that Nick is still years away from dealing with. And I think what's really interesting is that Charlie, almost by his own nature, creates a safe space for Nick to deal with what he's going through. Yeah. And that, to me, is, in some ways, it's breaking down any notion of any sort of dominance in a relationship or that, like, these are two people who are really feeding on each other in a 
positive way. They're making each other better as a result because Charlie, he's been there. He's like, you don't need to rush to come out to anybody. That is their problem, is not your problem. You take whatever time you need. He creates a safe space. He's not denying anything about Nick. And in fact, it kind of makes him sick when he has to deny it to other people in order to keep someone else's secret safe. But he does it because he knows it's the right thing to do. And so I think that sort of nuance, getting back to why I think Alice Oseman has really created something great here, that nuance of something which does happen in gay relationships is so subtle and yet so critical. And I'm curious from your standpoint, looking at this from a more traditional heteronormative kind of perspective, like, does any of that resonate here? Like, or is that something which I'm just like totally, you know, geeking out on here because it feels so right? Well, I think potentially it feels so right because there's just a truth to human relationships in general that can be found in a well-told story. Because I, you know, have never been in a romance with another young man and or a man in general and but I found a lot to relate in terms of their romance and how they kind of interacted with one another and the strengths and the social hierarchy that was at play but then kind of like to your point about some of the behind the scenes like Charlie's just kind of like that old soul almost Mm -hmm. energy that he's he's bringing to the relationship yeah yeah well said and I think that that's true for a lot of straight relationships too you know where you've got one person who outwardly might be the more successful the more you know capable seeming but they're really rooted with the foundation of their partner who has a lot more stability in other areas and so I found their romance very believable this was two people falling in love and while I'm sure it exists I'm sure there is a lot of nuance that I wasn't picking up on some of which you've helped illuminate for me just now you know it could have just been a girl and a guy falling in love in some instances in some of their interactions because it just felt genuine and it felt like yeah this is what love should be Mm -hmm. you know Uh, especially when you're a teenager and and you have that kind of, you know, I'm obsessed with this person. This is like, you know, there's there's no one else you want to spend time with. There really is nothing to compare to that kind of infatuation and, and if you want to call it love at this age. And I thought she captured that very well, gay or straight. So I've said that I've recommended this to lots of people and sung the praises of these books, even though, as I say, they do have some faults. And, you know, I do encourage folks to continue reading the series. It does take a very dramatic turn. Yeah, uh, And begins to deal with some much less surface level issues mm-hmm. and some deeper trauma that the characters have, which I think, again, just continues to reinforce why I think this is an important bit of literature. But I'm curious for you, like, would you recommend people read this who are not in the LGBTQ community? Um, it depends what you hope that that person gets out of it, I would mm-hmm. say. I think to get the most out of it, it probably would be helpful for somebody who hasn't had any experience themselves with same-sex romance, for someone like yourself, a friend who has, to give them a little bit of a preface to what they should be looking for and expect out of this. Mm -hmm. That said, I think anyone can still go into this blind and see why it's charmed so many people. And perhaps the discovery later of, okay, like, that was fun, that was delightful, but why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a cultural phenomenon? Maybe that research that this straw man heteronormative person might encounter might even be better because then they can kind of stumble upon some of the answers themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think you said it all when you said something that on the surface is as simple as this, is as narratively light and charming as this is. If that had existed for you when you were growing up and kind of coming to terms with your own sexuality, the difference that that would have made shows its importance right there. Mm-hmm. 
I think then that's a good place to wrap up our discussion of volumes one and two of Heartstopper. So we've talked about graphic novels this whole month, neither one of us being real big fans of the genre. Mm -hmm. What's your kind of takeaway on graphic novels in general? Is this something you want to return to? Yeah, I hadn't actually read a graphic novel in a couple years. And in fact, the book that we discussed before, Scott McCloud's book on understanding comics, I'd actually, was the most recent comic-based thing <laughs> that I had actually read, uh, quite coincidentally. And it really does make me think that I need to be exploring more of hmm. this space. I don't feel any pull towards like getting into the long-form comic book hero kind of genre. It doesn't do anything for me but is a device to tell stories in a new way. I feel like I'm missing something here by not spending more time on this. Yeah, it definitely adds something to the narrative device, having those panels depicted for you. It doesn't take away from the imagination. It kind of offloads that part of your imagination to do other things Mm -hmm. and to kind of explore other parts of the story. So I've really appreciated it too. And then I guess just to kind of bring it all back to Heartstopper, where do Charlie and Nick fit in the greater MCU? Well, I think they only exist in a subset of multiverses. Okay, okay. But Nelly the dog appears in all of them and is awesome <laughs> in all of Nelly them. Nelly the dog is definitely the unsung hero, at least of the art style, for sure. Yeah, it, it, it's so good. It's worth reading the books just for Nelly. Anyhow, so for our next episode, we're going to make a pretty dramatic shift here in content, and we're going to be reading what? Gabriel Garcia Marquez's final novel, Memories of My Melancholy Whores. This is a fascinating, very, very short book. I'm curious what you have to say about this. I've got my own thoughts okay. here. And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to having that chat because there's not a lot of words, but it raises a lot of questionable topics. And Oh, I didn't notice. Does it? Oh, Yeah, it does. Actually. Oh, okay. okay. And I'm kind of curious where we land in our discussion on that. Yeah. And for those of you who are going to be lining up to read it, it's, I think, 90 pages. Yep, yep. It is a breezy read, although the content is um, a little startling. Troubling, I think. Yeah. uh... Um, This is one of the great masters of Spanish language literature, writing his final novel at, I think, age 91, 92, something like that. So (laughs) About someone of the same age. Yeah. It is a must read from that perspective, and hopefully we can peel back some of the layers of it, because I think there's more to be said than just the troubling nature of it. Yeah, because, I mean, last season we talked about Lolita, and I would put this very much in the same category, about, like, what is it that we as readers should be taking away from this and what is it that we can be okay with being appalled by sure so until then as always we want to thank the stardust lounge here for hosting us we've just been drinking martinis here but i really feel like crystal needs to come up with some sort of heart stopper cocktail like it's a great name for a cocktail. Right. I mean, can we just like dissolve some of those little Valentine's Day candy hearts that taste like uh, chalk? That's adorable. Into, uh, yeah, you kind of mix it up a little bit. I think that's what we'll do. Anyhow, Edgar Bergamot on the piano, as always. He loves these books, by the way. But that's not surprising at all. Anyhow, until next time, this has been Literary Guys, signing off. <laughs>